So that's 2 Peter, chapter 3, starting from verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and as a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are awaiting the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from men. From his fellow men, I will require a reckoning for the life of men. Whoever sheds the blood of men, by men shall his blood be shed. For God made men in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the, multiply, on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. In 1932, the government of Australia developed a plan to eradicate a problem that plagued the wheat fields of the west part of the country, emus. About 20,000 of these flightless birds were running amok, destroying crops, so the government sent in a squad of soldiers armed in with two machine guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. Dubbed the Great Emu War, the plan was a spectacular failure. Only a few dozen emus were killed, the crop destruction continued, and the soldiers withdrew to much media amusement. Big plan, spectacular failure. Over the past few weeks in Genesis, we've been looking at a plan on a far greater scale. God saw the evil and wickedness and death that filled our world because of human sin. So he put the best of humanity and a slice of creation on a boat and sent a catastrophic flood. Well, today we're going to ask why God launched a huge plan that didn't work. What was it for? To clean up humanity. What didn't it do? Clean up humanity. Evil and wickedness are still around today. And even in this passage, it's clear that humanity are still a complete mess. Uh, Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, God points out. And that is exactly the same problem that God saw before the flood. Uh, Listen to what God saw about humanity before the flood in chapter 6. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's the same problem. Yes, the flood cleared up lots of violence and wickedness from creation, 
But humanity's sin is still there. And Noah and his family, they're exhibit A of this problem. But what gives? Did God's plan to clean up sin fail? Has the God who created everything finally found something that he cannot handle? Well, I guess that's one option. But let's consider the other for a moment. Maybe the plan to end sin is even bigger than we thought. Maybe the flood was just step one in a much grander plan. How do we tell? Well, we look at what God did next. So Noah and his family, they step off the boat, thankful to be alive, and God looks at them and he points out the fact that the human heart is sinful. It's not a surprise to him. He knew Noah and his family had sinful hearts when he put them on the ark. It's not a surprise to God. And he didn't equip the ark with an operating theater and a heart transplant surgeon. It's not a surprise. God has got a plan. And the next step in this plan seems to be preservation. Humanity still has a sin problem, but God in his kindness sets out to keep them alive. He sets out to limit the damage that they can do. God preserves a sinful world. I've previously been part of a church that met in some very old buildings. Uh, And like most old buildings, it had a whole host of structural problems, including some very large cracks. And since they didn't want the building to fall down around their ears one Sunday, uh, the builders came in and installed braces and beams around the cracks. And it was some poor person's job to climb up the bell tower once a year with a ruler to measure the crack to check that it hadn't grown and that all these supporting beams and braces were working. Since humanity turned our backs on God and chose sin, the world has been like a derelict building. Major structural issues, cracks spreading, collapse imminent. But in this passage, we see God putting up three supporting beams, three things to preserve our world despite humanity's sin. And the first beam is right there in chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. God preserves our world with sacrifices for our sins. Sacrifices for our sins. If I were Noah and I'd just survived a cataclysmic judgment and a year at sea, the first thing that I would do when I left the boat would probably be kiss the ground or hug a tree or something similar. But Noah's first move is to make a sacrifice. Look down at chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So why sacrifice Noah's first priority in not hugging a tree or kissing the ground? Uh, Why not a heartfelt prayer or a thank you for rescuing me card? Why did animals have to die? Uh, Well, it had to be a sacrifice because sin is an ongoing problem. Noah and his family deserved judgment, just like the rest of humanity, They're sinners and they will carry on sinning. But our God is holy and just. He cannot just brush sin under the carpet. There's no such thing as a get out of judgment free card. Keeping sinful humanity alive has a cost, we can see. So God provides sacrifices to preserve humanity. You see, these sacrifices, they aren't Noah's bright idea. It's a solution that God planned well in advance. Remember back to when Noah was loading up the pairs of animals onto the ark. 
It was God who told him to bring seven of every clean animal, seven pairs of every clean animal. Uh, That's the ones that the Israelites could use in worship. If God hadn't thought ahead and provided these clean animals, then every time Noah went to make a sacrifice, he would have been picking a species to wipe from existence. I want to make a sacrifice. There go the goats. There go the sheep. There go the tigers. God gave animals to Noah to sacrifice. The animals die so that Noah and his family can live. And we can see that these sacrifices work in 8 verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Despite human sin, despite human sin that will carry on into the future, creation will survive and the world will keep on spinning. And this is all because of the sacrifices that God provided. This is an act of grace, God's undeserved kindness. The Lord knew that Noah and his family would continue to sin, so he gave them sacrifices for their sin. That's the first supporting beam in this derelict world. And the second supporting beam that we see God put in place to stop these growing cracks is there in chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. God gives them rules to restrain evil. Rules to restrain evil. So after Noah makes the sacrifices, God launches into a long speech at the first words to the first people in this new world. And some of them are surprisingly positive, given all of the mess that we've just heard about humanity's evil heart. Uh, look down at 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God starts by repeating the blessing that he had said to Adam and Eve way back before the fall. He is recommissioning them to fill the earth again. It's a good thing. But not everything is so positive. Uh, Right back in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve were told to subdue and have dominion over creation. uh, Something like wise leadership. Uh, But verse 2 of our chapter sounds rather more tense. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish of the sea. Fear and dread, it sounds pretty ominous. And to make things even more ominous, God gives humanity some new rules. They can eat absolutely anything they like in this new world, but verse four, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now that sounds like a ban on undercooked steak, But in fact, it's a ban on eating like an animal. When predators like lions eat, it's a messy business. This is normally uh, censored out of David Attenborough documentaries, but lions rip their prey apart, uh, sometimes still breathing, and get their manes totally covered in blood. And God's saying, don't do it like that. Uh, Rule one in this new world, thou shalt not eat like an animal. And rule two, value human life. Or if you'd like, thou shalt not murder. Look at verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. 
for God made man in his own image. In the second rule, God explicitly states that human life is valuable because humanity are made in his image. It's so valuable, in fact, that murder is a tragedy and the just response might even be for the murderer to lose their life. Don't eat like an animal and value human life. At this point, we might be thinking that these rules sound pretty obvious. Uh, But it's precisely because of humanity's track record of sin and wickedness in Genesis that God spells out these rules, that God makes them explicit. It's like when you see signs in the world that obviously have a story behind them. Uh, If you headed upstairs in St. Helens and went up to the kitchenette at the top of the offices and you looked at the microwave, uh, you would see a sign in block capitals that says, no fish, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Uh, There isn't obviously a story behind that, and I'm glad I'm not in the office when that happened. Um, Or once I was in a library uh, where there was a rule that if you wanted a library card, you had to promise, I will not bring into the library or kindle therein any flame or fire. I'm not going to start fires in the library. Again, I don't think matches are a part of my normal, I'm just popping to the library bag. Uh, So there must be a story behind that one too. God's two rules, don't eat like an animal and don't kill, they seem pretty obvious, but the story behind them is human sin. A human sin looked small at the start, turning our backs on God, but it wasn't long before the first murder, you might know the names Cain and Abel, and then not long again before the earth was filled with violence. It seems obvious that violent eating and murder are wrong. Uh, But sin has so twisted humanity that God needs to put a sign up to remind us. He gives us these explicit rules to slow the spread of sin. Now, these rules have been absorbed into our culture today. Uh, We think they're obvious too. Uh, But we should recognize what it says about us, about humanity, that God had to spell out these rules here at the beginning. They're not the human default And we've seen that as various societies around the world, including our own, try to make exceptions to them. Is this person really human? Are they really worthy of protection? We try to make exceptions. Sin has warped our sense of right and wrong. And these rules right here are damage control. They are slowing the spread of sin. And without God stepping in to give these and other rules throughout history, our world would be far worse than it is today. Evil would be far more out of control. But in his kindness, God looked at a sinful world and said, I'm going to give them some rules to help slow the spread of sin, to help restrain evil. But even these rules aren't enough to preserve our world. Even with the safety rails of sacrifices and rules, sin is going to spread. The cracks in the derelict building that is our world are going to grow. So God adds the third supporting beam in verses 8 to 17, and it is the strongest of them all. God gives us a covenant that we can't mess up. A covenant we can't mess up. So God promises Noah that he's not going to flood the world again, however bad sin gets. But that's a very hard thing for Noah to believe, just having lived through a flood. So God gives him something called a covenant, like a binding agreement to help him believe it. 
to paraphrase this covenant, I promise to never flood the world again. No matter how bad sin gets, no matter how much humanity with your evil hearts mess up the world. Signed, the Lord. And as a reminder of this covenant, he places a rainbow in the heavens so that we can look up and remember the promise and so that we can be sure that when God looks down and sees the violence of our world, he'll see a reminder of this promise too. This covenant is so incredible. It's unfair to describe it as just a supporting beam in a derelict building. It is far more than that. With a derelict building, no matter how hard you try to preserve it, no matter how hard you try to keep the cracks from spreading, there comes a point where it just becomes too far gone, too unsafe, or for our world, just too sinful. And you have to bring the wrecking ball in and knock the building down. Or in our case, God's judgment has to sweep the world. But here, God is promising unconditional preservation for everything. There's no human side to this deal, did you notice? There is no way for humanity to break this covenant. And there's no exception to who's protected by it. Uh, Look in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all generations. It's an every living thing covenant. Uh, Think of anything that you've seen on a wildlife documentary. Uh, A ring-tailed lemur, a weird cave-dwelling slug with big boggle eyes. Uh, This covenant protects them, anything you can think of, and the cameraman, no matter what he's done with his life. It's an every living thing covenant. And it's an everlasting covenant too. Uh, Think of any living person or any person from history. Uh, Think of Julius Caesar, think of Attila the Hun, think of those around us in the world today. This covenant with Noah is the one that protects them, however bad they are. It is an incredible promise. Humanity has a terrible track record of obedience. No matter how many rules God puts in place, a sin will spread. We know this. But God, with this covenant, is reserving judgment. The wrecking ball isn't going to come in and smash the place The heavens aren't going to open and drown the world with water again. And the rainbow is God's equivalent of a giant WWF panda logo in the sky. These species, this world, is under my protection. In his incredible kindness, God preserves a sinful world that he knows is going to get more and more sinful. He gives it sacrifices for sin. He gives it rules to restrain evil. He gives it a covenant that we just cannot mess up. And that's the burden of this passage. Uh, We need to see God's incredible grace in his dealings with humanity. Uh, Despite Noah's sin, God preserved him and his family. Despite our sin today, God continues to preserve our world and restrain evil. There is so much to praise God for. And we could end this passage and this series right there. But I think that would leave us with some pretty huge questions. God is preserving sinful humanity, we know that. But why? 
Now, God just can't be compromising. He can't just be saying, I love you so much, I'm going to put up with your sin forever. Uh, This is the same holy God who rightly and consistently hates sin. Turn to any part of the Bible and you'll see that. Uh, This is the God who loves justice and who cannot tolerate injustice. God cannot be compromising here. So why preserve sinful humanity? And we're at the end of three weeks in this Noah story where God has made massive promises of hope and rest and of a world without wickedness and evil, which so far, as we said at the start, have fallen flat. A sinful world with some supporting beams to stop it getting any worse is hardly the promised new world that we were thinking about last week. And so we're left asking, if not the flood, what's going to sort out the world? If not Noah, then who is going to bring rest? Is there even a plan? And the answer is yes. God preserves a sinful world because the end of sin is coming. On to the final point of our handout. God preserves a sinful world because the end of sin is coming. You see, you preserve something that's broken because you intend to fix it. If somebody is injured and bleeding, why do you put a bandage around their injury? Because you're going to take them to A and E, and hopefully they're going to get mended there. Why shore up an old building unless you had plans for its future? Preservation is not enough. God is preserving this sinful world because he plans to put an end to sin. It's even right there in this passage. Uh, Look back to chapter 8, verse 22, right at the beginning of this passage. God's wonderful intention that the world will keep spinning despite human sin. Uh, When I read it before, I missed four words from the start of it. I don't know whether you noticed. Uh, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, day and night will not cease. While the earth remains, God promises to preserve the world despite sin. The sacrifices and rules that he provided will hold back judgment. His covenant, his promise, is unconditional and everlasting. But somehow, this present order of things has an expiration date. God says this world will not continue in sin forever. Noah's story is just the beginning of the beginning of God's plan to deal with sin, which is a very good thing, I hope we'll all agree, because preservation is not enough. If you went to A&E with a bandage on, uh, you would want the wound fixed. You wouldn't be happy if the doctor said, great, there's a bandage, turn away, go away. Or if you lived in a building with growing cracks, you'd want it fixed. You wouldn't be happy if the builders came in and said, those supporting beams will do you forever. And we live in a world of sin and wickedness and death. We do not want a God who just limits the damage. We want a God who deals with sin and who sets out to fix our world. And the wonderful news is God plans to do just that. We thought that Noah and the flood would be the way that God fixed the world. Noah's dad called him rest and said, this one shall bring us relief, remember. But because of Noah's sinful heart, The solution just can't be him. The solution has to come through one of his offspring, 
the family who we saw filling the world right at the end of our passage in verse 18. And from that family will come one offspring whose name is Jesus. God himself, born into Noah's family and born into Noah's sinful world, but without that family trait of sin in the heart. Unlike Noah and all who came after him, Jesus lived a sinless life, a life entirely pleasing to God, his father. He had every opportunity to be like all of the rest of us, but he didn't resort to violence nor to murder. Noah needed sacrifices because of his sins, but as we've been thinking about in our songs and readings today, uh, Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, to pay the price that our sin deserves. So Noah couldn't save us, quite right, but Jesus can. Uh, Jesus has made a way for anyone to come to him and have their sins forgiven and their hearts cleansed. And this is wonderfully good news for our sinful world. If you're here today as somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, can I say that this is wonderfully good news for you too? If you're confused, bemused, questioning, or just think there's a chance that this might all be true, can I encourage you to have a look at one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life? Uh, Matthew's Gospel, there are some copies at the back, or come and find me afterwards. But don't delay Because now Jesus has come, and Noah's story reaches its fulfillment, Uh, this story is a warning for our world. While the earth remains, God says. You see, this world has an expiration date. Now that Jesus, the Savior, has come, this preservation that we've seen God doing in this passage can end. And all that we were promised in Noah's story over the past few weeks will come. The end of sin and death, a sinless new creation, and judgment for evil. There will be judgment. So don't delay, because the earth will not remain forever. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are a God of incredible grace. Thank you for all the ways that you preserve and have mercy on our sinful world, and most of all, for the grace that you've shown us in Jesus, our Savior. Please keep us from thinking that your plans have failed, and instead help us to look forward to that day when Jesus will come again to end sin and death forever. Amen. Lots of questions. Uh, The flood, worldwide, global, local, Any thoughts on that? I don't want to be too... I I think in all of this, we need to assert this is true. This is history, not myth. But I'm reasonably flexible on what Noah is, or what Moses is, is saying when he's asserting this. So I think the Bible sometimes uses language that is true of... that is kind of a true representation of our world and is, is true in every sense, in the same way that we would say that the sun rises, even though if you kind of zoomed out from the world that we know that the earth is kind of revolving around the sun, it's still true to say the sun rises, and it's still a useful thing to say. So I think from Noah's perspective, from Moses' perspective, every living thing died, 
every living thing was covered. I think one of the things that I would be slower to say that if, you know, you had a NASA shot of the world in that day, you know, the picture of the, the world with the green heavens, that it would just be all blue entirely. I'm, I'm open to that possibility. But I think the important thing to do is to go in close and look at what Moses is actually saying and whether it was a cataclysmic local flood or a global flood, I think that we are in the same, in the same sort of territory. And I think the, the meaning of what Moses is saying is reasonably clear. Um, and I think, yeah, if you have more questions on that, come to me afterwards. Um, I think would be good. Do you have anything to... Brilliant. Let's dive into some of the details about which there was questions. So these sacrifices um, Noah offered, um, one question was, what does it mean it's a burnt offering? Shouldn't it be a sin offering? And then another question, but related, how do you know the sacrifices were for sin rather than maybe a thanksgiving for being saved from the flood? Yeah, so I think that... So a burnt offering, I I think the two are related. Um, So a burnt offering is just a one of the types of offering that you'll find in, in Leviticus later. And the, the important part of it is that the whole kind of, the animal or the part of the animal is consumed and burnt up. And burnt offerings later are given for sin. Um, it's not a particular kind of offering for being burnt. It's, it's just what you describe uh, an offering for sin could be burnt. And the idea is the kind of, the animal is consumed and rises up. And that's what God is kind of smelling in, in verse uh, in uh, verse 21. And I, th- I think it could maybe just be a thanksgiving offering. But um, I think we see later in the Bible, um, and certainly the first readers of, of Genesis would have known the sacrificial system, and they would have seen that burnt offerings are particularly associated with, with sin. And the idea of the animal being consumed and death being involved links it to sin as well. I think also, if you just think it's a Thanksgiving offering, you have some questions to ask about how the kind of this, off, this sacrifice being the one that seems to kind of turn away God's, God's right anger at, at Noah in this passage. You have some questions about how that fits together. So I want to say it's more than a Thanksgiving offering. Uh, I think if we follow on later, sin is, is definitely involved. Brilliant. You've asked so many about details. I'm going to ask maybe a couple more, but you don't have to go great length. But, um, okay, don't eat like an animal. Mm-hmm. What does that actually mean, don't eat animals you know, with their life but for us? I think it would look like going into a forest and, you know, kind of brutally killing something and eating it raw, as in, I think that's probably what it is. I think there are, there are ways of eating violently, I think, with no respect to animal life being valuable, uh, eating in the same way as a, as, as a predator, rather than a kind of a responsible steward of the world, I think. Thank you. And then the other rule, value human life, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. Um, what does this say about capital punishment, if anything, and if so, what? I think, I think the you, we definitely have to be open to the idea in the Bible that God's law sometimes allows or prescribes the death penalty for certain crimes, uh, and in particular ones with the loss involving the deliberate taking of another human life. I think we have freedom as Christians to see how that's worked out in society, and there are obvious 
dangers of the death penalty, for instance, innocent people being killed by it. And I think the same thing of um, human life being valuable and, and taking, taking the life of other deserving death has as much to say to juries as it does to criminals. Judicial murder is still murder. Um, but I think we have to be open to the idea that human life is so valuable that taking it might uh, forfeit your own life, I think. So let's now, thanks, sorry if I haven't asked your detailed questions, there are quite a lot, but do come and talk to Matthew or to me afterwards and we'll try and help maybe with some of those. But I think take a step back, now there are a few bigger picture, wider angle lens questions. One which goes back to your first talk, but really is over the three weeks. Um, Genesis 6, how can God regret doing something? Um, another question, it sounds like God got it wrong. Surely God is meant to be perfect. So how could all this happen? I think we, the Bible often uses human language, um, anthropomorphic language, describing God like a human, because we understand things at a human level. I think, for instance, God doesn't change his mind. The Bible's very clear on that later. And um, God doesn't kind of have emotions that flip about like ours do. So I think when, when Genesis 6 says that God regrets that he made mankind, is expressing the the, the strength of feeling that he has towards the way that humanity have messed up the world, as in it, it is, is a terrible grievance. It's awful and terrible. I think there are lots of clues that um, throughout the narrative that God isn't kind of making a mistake. He isn't kind of a master chess player, kind of rolling with the punches. I think um, if, you, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, you have the, um, the promise in chapter 315 that there will be an offspring um, between your... So the serpent, kind of evil, Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There will be an offspring that defeats evil. And I think if God can look ahead and say that there is going to be one who is defeating evil it's hard to imagine that history and kind of how the flood went was a surprise to him. He describes it in ways that we can understand and he reveals himself over the course of history, but this is the God who created the world. He knows from the end from the beginning. Thank you. God preserves a sinful world, you told us. So why then the flood, which was going to destroy things? Why if do that if God is going to preserve a sinful world? Because sin deserves judgment. And it's right that the violence of this world was responded to with judgment. So I think if you go back to chapter 6, verse, uh, verse, oh, I'm sorry, I've lost it now. Uh, verse 11, yeah. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. This is what God's looking at. The flood is his right response to that. That did deal with evil to an extent. But as I mentioned, when we, were, when we were actually looking at the flood, God is not only judging the world, but he is also preserving the world. So the flood was, to an extent, sorting out the violence. And that is the right thing. Uh, the question really is, why was Noah and his family spared, rather than why, why kind of judge in the first place? A related question. Um, if this plan didn't work, as you explained at the beginning, why didn't God just get to a plan straight away that would work? Because of mankind's stubborn, sinful heart. 
Um, one of the things that you see as we've been looking at in Exodus over the course of the whole Bible is that uh, we are continuing to rebel and rebel and rebel. And God took this long to reveal his plan because um, if he'd revealed it any earlier, then humanity wouldn't have turned, wouldn't have repented, wouldn't have been ready for it. So the whole salvation story of the Bible is preparing people for Jesus. And then um, in Galatians, in the fullness of time, uh, when the plan was ready, God was revealed. A few more now about really how this passage applies or what it means today and looks like generally. So if Genesis says we are all evil from the heart, why is there still today good in the world? Um, another one, why? But don't non-Christians as well do lots of good things? Yes, um, if we turn back to chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of, the man, of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not saying that, it, that all of us think, uh, only intend to, to do evil all the time with every act and we're as bad as we possibly could be. It's saying that at the root of every human action is a heart that is turned away from God. And I think if we look at the good that people do in the world today, uh, we know that it's polluted with self-centeredness and with jealousy and with you know, w- wanting to be Uh, seen to do good by the world. Uh, There is no kind of pure good action that sinful humanity does. Um, And I I think I would ask of non-Christians in particular, how can you love your neighbor if you hate the God who is love, which is what Jesus would claim uh, people who don't follow Jesus do. I think we need to be realistic about the fact that all of our motives are polluted. But the good news is that in Jesus. Jesus offers new hearts and the chance to turn and to trust and to obey, truly. Uh, You talked about rules restraining evil back then. Is that still the case today? Do we have rules from God today to restrain evil? Yes. I think that these laws would still apply to humanity generally today to restrain. I think they've been taken up by the cultures of the world. I think that God's law as a whole, as we've been looking at in Exodus, is in part there to restrain evil for those societies that would apply it or for those individuals that would apply it to their lives. I think all law has that kind of effect of restraining evil. I would be I want to say more about how the law of Israel applies to our, to our world today. So come talk to me after if that's your question. We've been talking this afternoon about Jesus dealing with sin once and for all. That, that was the true rescue. One or two questions, but the point is we've had Jesus. Yeah. There is still sin. How can we say, therefore, Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all? So, God, so if you turn to 2 Peter 3, where we started... Um. So, two Peter three verse nine: uh, the Lord is not slow to fulfil his promises, as some count slowness. It's the promise of judgment, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. As Christians today, we live in this weird middle ground where Jesus has come to pay the full penalty for sin, but so that there is a chance for more and more people to turn to him and accept that payment and be healed and put their trust in him, we have this gap. Um, And 2 Peter says that that is God's patience wanting more to repent. So there will be a day when Jesus will come again and cleanse all of the sin from the world. Um, But so that more people survive that day, he is being patient. Last question. So we've had this series on Noah. Um, Jesus tells us to remember Noah and passages like we've just heard. So Matthew, you can speak personally or as we keep talking about this now maybe over the road and think about it what do you think are some of the headlines for the way remembering the days of Noah will help us as Christians today yeah I think off the back of this 2 Peter 3 I think recognizing the urgency of telling our friends about Jesus telling our friends in contacts about Jesus um, there will be a day of judgment and it will be as total as Noah's flood but I think on a, on, a, on a slightly different note, God's plans are far greater than we could imagine. As in, I think sometimes we, um, we limit the scope of God's plans. We think that Christianity is just something to make my life better. It will make me right with God. It will uh, make my friend's life with God a little bit better. But God has these worldwide creation-changing plans to deal with sin and death. And remembering Noah's story helps us set our eyes higher and think, Actually, I can look around a world of wickedness and death and think it will not always be this way because of God. We have a far greater hope than I think lots of us dare to imagine. And that's what I've taken away from the series.